Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi everybody, Trace Blackmore here. Welcome to the world's most popular industrial water treatment podcast. I am very excited about today's show. I'm excited about every show. I think I say that each and every time I come on with you. I gotta tell you, Nation, I love the fact that you are listening to Scaling Up H2O. I love the fact that when I see you in person, you let me know that this show is doing something for you. Whether it's allowing you to talk to somebody about going to a training function or maybe getting a mentor or maybe trying something new that you've never thought of before. I love all of those stories because that means that you're becoming a better water treater. And I get so many people that thank me for them doing those items. Folks, that was all you. You have all the credit to thank for that. I was just maybe a little nudge to push you in that direction, but you should know that you are the people that are out there doing that. Please keep doing that and please let me know your stories. I can't tell you how much that means to me. It really does motivate me to do these shows and to put all of this information out there into the industrial water treatment community. Last year, I had the privilege to speak at several Association of Water Technology venues at the convention and expo in Orlando, Florida. And one of the topics that I spoke on was millennials in the workforce. And have you ever thought about the fact that we have five generations working in today's workforce? So those generations are the Gen Zers, the Millennials, the Gen Xers, the Baby Boomers, and the Traditionalists. So if you are listening to this show, I promise you are one of the members of those generations. And with those generations, we get brought up differently. We have different expectations because of the that upbringing, so it only stands to reason that we may have some issues when it comes to communicating with each other. Well, folks, there's no doubt about it. If you own a company, if you work for a company, you need people to help you do that work. So if a certain company out there cannot relate to a particular generation, well, that may not allow them to get the work done. So today's interview, we are talking with Jeff Butler, and he is an expert on this multi-generational workplace communication. He has written several books on the topic, and he's going to share with us what we should know about different generations working together and how we can do it a little bit better. Scale It Up Nation, please help me welcome Jeff Butler. My lab partner today is Jeff Butler. And Jeff, I'm so glad you're on Scaling Up H2O. I have had so many conversations with other water treaters, other water treatment company owners, and there's so many misconceptions out there about the different generations working together. Now, before we get started, though, how would you explain exactly what it is that you do? Yeah, great question. So what I do is I help workplaces create work environments where generations can work together using each other's strengths to the best of their ability. So making sure that, say, baby boomers can work well with millennials and able to leverage each one of their uh, best attributes. Well, it sounds like you are the right person for this show. Do you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation a little about yourself? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Jeff Butler. I've uh, written a couple books on workplace dynamics. I travel all around the world just helping all different kinds of industries. Originally, I started talking about millennials because I'm actually 27 years old, extremely young to be in this space. But I, what I saw as an opportunity is helping workplaces from a younger employee's perspective. Because when I was growing up, I was in uh, Silicon Valley, in a Silicon Valley household. My parents built several companies in real estate. From there, went as a computer science degree, worked in several fast-moving startups, and I ended up deciding to go into speaking, went into several TED Talks, and then now do keynote speaking and training across, I guess now, around the world, because I had my first big keynote in Spain. 
uh, in June. So I guess it's kind of going in our, our intercontinental, as they say. That's awesome, man. How was it speaking overseas? Oh, no, that's in June. So I, I have to work on my Spanish a little bit for that. I'm still... Oh, you're delivering it in Spanish? No, I wish. <laughs> I, I, I need to make sure that I could say, hi, my name is Jeff in Spanish, you know, not sound like a complete American. <laughs> Good luck with that. I know. I need a lot of luck for that one. Well, when you and I started, before we started recording, I was explaining to you that at the Association of Water Technologies Convention and Expo last summer, I was on a panel of millennials. And I don't think I got as far into what I'm getting ready to tell you now, but when I was the moderator and we had a panel of millennials and then we had a bunch of people in the audience of all generations, but mainly they were probably Gen Xers and traditionalists. And with that, I asked, what are some adjectives that describe millennials? What do you think they said? Dude, that is so loaded. I don't know why you led with that. That's scary. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I mean, things came out like lazy, always on their phone, self-absorbed, you know, things like that. And I know personally the people that are up on, or that were up on that panel, and I wouldn't use any of those phrases to describe any of them. So why don't we do this? Why don't we explain first what the different generations are out there? And then maybe we go into some stereotypical characteristics of each one of those generations. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so if we walk backwards, or I guess youngest to oldest, right now we have Generation Z coming up. And they are, I guess, at the oldest right now, around 18 years old, uh, just starting to hit the workplace. And that's actually younger than millennials. And right above that, you have millennials. And here's where uh, I sort of step away from the stereotypes in generations. It turns out, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the term Generation Y and Millennial. Are you familiar with those two terms? I, I, I thought they were interchangeable. Are they not? Right. They're not. And this is the weird part. It's why are there two different terms? And it turns out that they were both coined by different sources. And when you look at generations, you would probably think, oh, this is by the Census Bureau. Government did data, did a whole bunch of analysis on some survey that's on their website. But that's not the case. So Millennial was coined by uh, two generation experts, and they had a book called Millennials Now or the Generations book. It's a pretty, it's a cornerstone to a lot of the generation theory out there. And the interesting thing is those two authors coined Millennial. Harvard Business Review coined Generation Y. The millennial is more of a commonly used term, while Generation Y, not as much. But Generation X is used a lot, right? You probably hear that all the time, right? That's actually my generation. Right. Genera yeah, Generation X. Have you heard of 13ers? I have never heard that one. Exactly. 13ers was the other generation for Generation X that the two marketers that coined millennial had. So it turns out that is the media didn't pick up that term because it just wasn't catchy enough. So what you have is this really interesting marketing game of who can coin the next term for the generations. And if you do, and yours is the most accepted, you become the go-to expert. Well, there you go. And that's why in a lot of these talks, I'm like, look, there's a lot of things that are changing the world. Sure, technology, innovation, globalization, all those kinds of things. But the main thing to be aware of is that a lot of those stereotypes that come out there are from people who say have alternative agendas to say appeal to whatever media outlet they're pitching their story to. Well, I love it. That's great information. I didn't know that. See, we're already educating the Scaling Up Nation. Tell us some more. Okay. So going back a little bit further, you have Generation X. And this is, I just don't really like to say pigeonhole people in different spaces because you could say, well, you know, baby boomers, when they were growing up, you know, were just after World War II. And they're a lot more, you know, traditional, like mid, like the traditional generation, they're loyal, they stay in one place. And, you know, you can find edge cases in every single generation. And I think what happens to a lot of employers or people who have businesses or managers, they listen to generation experts and they have all these stereotypes. And then they carry those stereotypes into the workplace thinking, oh, all millennials like smartphones, <laughs> which is not the case. I actually had my first TED talk was on smartphones and how it changes the way you think. So I'm not really like a 100% everyone needs technology kind of guy. The thing is, is if a manager 
gets caught up in a stereotype and they use that for the individual, then you get into a lot of workplace conflict. But if they use it for the system of the company, then they're able to leverage the stereotype effectively. So let's look at the implementation of that. Let's say you have an example where you read a study by some, you know, credible source that millennials love black coffee in the morning. In fact, 90% of millennials love black coffee in the morning. Completely not true, but just say hypothetically it is for this case. Okay. Fair enough. You take that study and say that you have a onboarding process of all the new millennials in your company and you get 90% of the coffee black because that's what the study is. So it's the system of the party, okay? But if you would walk up to a millennial during the party who's not drinking black coffee and say, oh, wow, you're not drinking black coffee. What's wrong with you? I thought all millennials like black coffee, right? That's addressing the individual. That's stereotyping the individual. And that's where a lot of the generation turmoil in the workplace starts to manifest itself. So as a manager or someone who's more of a leader in the organization, understanding leveraging those sort of higher level explanations for generation on the systemized level, not the individual level. So for somebody that's had issues out there in the scaling up nation that has hired somebody in the younger generation and they consistently see the same issues, is that an issue with them? Is that an issue with the individual? Is that an issue with the actual millennial workforce? How do, how do you go about finding that out? Yeah. Well, the thing is, is when you have an issue with an individual, let's just say that a huge, well, one of the big stereotypes for millennials is that they're lazy. And one concept of being lazy or one, I guess, symptom of being lazy is not doing a high enough quality job on a task, right? That's probably an easy thing we can agree on. So then I would say, okay, if you can figure out if it's the individual or the generation issue, what I would say is, well, let's not depend on the individual. Let's just make sure that the systems that we have in place are credible enough to ensure that the individual in that system is an actual good employee rather than it being, well, all millennials are lazy, all of them put low quality work out, so we have to drop the bar. So then in that case, what I've done in my own companies that I've run, I've actually started three by the time of 27, is that if I have, say, an employee that I'm worried about the level of quality that they're doing, I would have a checklist of things that when they deliver a task, here's the 10 things that I expect to be done in that particular task. When it's done, I view the checklist. If it's up to par, great. If it's not, then I know that the quality of their work is not up to par. Very often with generation dynamics, older generations see millennials on their phone not working as much, but the best question they have to ask is, are they actually completing the job up to their discretion? Stop being worried about the how and look more at the what is being done. If the what is great, the task is actually being done, that's fantastic then there's no problem there. But if the employee itself is not able to complete that task up to the level of quality you're looking for, then that's an individual problem. That's awesome advice. Let me let me ask, because we didn't quite finish this question. So we started talking about Generation Z. They're, uh, they're 18 right now. And then we had millennials. What are their age ranges? Oh my gosh. Depends on the source, man. <laughs> right, there's right. like so many different sources out there. So let's just say for this conversation, Anyone who's born between 1981 to 1996. Okay. And then what about the Xers? Xers are actually an overlap on there. It's, it's roughly around like 1984 to like 19, like 68, 70, around there. Depends on the source you're asking. And then Boomers, which 1946 to 1964. And then finally the Traditionalists. Which are before them, yes, which is another like 15, 20 years. So has there ever been a time where we've had five generations working together? Uh, no. I, well, I would, my argument would be, well, in terms of health, I mean, you can have, say, a great-grandfather working, working with uh, his son, you know, on a farm. I'm sure that has been done in the past, but has it been in, say, corporate America, has that been possible? My I have not seen this at this point. Part of it's because of medical advancements are allowing us to work at older ages. So the issues we're seeing today, I mean, it, it's, it's just logical. It's the first time that we might be experiencing that. And we have to resort to people like yourself who are experts in this that can help us out. Let me ask you, what are some of the common issues that you see with multi-generations working together? 
So whenever there's multi-generational turmoil, you can usually break it down to misaligned expectations flat out. So for example, let's take the whole smartphone issue, right? Whenever I give talks on millennials, there's always some guy who's in the back of the room, usually older guy, like 65 years old, raises his hand. He's like, I can't get millennials to get off their phone, like every time without question. And you know, there's like this expectation that in the workplace or wherever you are, you won't have a smartphone while a millennial would say, well, smartphones are okay, right? Misaligned expectations. What about in a lot of areas like finance today, there's always this huge challenge now for, do you still have to dress up in a suit and tie in finance? And a lot of millennials now are trying to push for, no, these should be more relaxed working environments. You see again, different expectations in the workplace. So as a manager, the difficult part is aligning expectations in the workplace. And that's basically taking those gray areas and making them black and white. Jeff, a reoccurring theme that I've heard from other business owners is they'll spend a lot of time teaching millennials or somebody in that generation, and it'll appear that they're nodding along, that they're getting exactly what's going on. And then the next day comes around, and it's as if they never heard that topic brought up before. What's going on there? Is there a misalignment with expectations? How do you, I've heard that so many times. What's going on there? So there's a bigger root problem here. And if people look at it on a very small scope, they would see a manager with an employee saying, hey, the manager needs to put down barriers, put down boundaries in order to make sure that whatever work is being done is up to par. But here's the problem. In a lot of industries now, millennials have been quote unquote known to have killed multiple industries. I was out in Missouri helping out the police chiefs out there with millennial training, like how to manage millennials and sort of provide explanation on why these the certain tendencies are. And the big thing that they're running into is like, look, we can't put down the, our foot as hard as we used to because they're just less applicants we can choose from now, which means then if there's less applicants, the quality itself drops. And that's not just in the police force. There's a lot of other areas that I see, especially in blue collar places where they just have tremendously less people applying, which means if they are able to recruit someone, they're a lot less likely to feel like, okay, I can't be a hard ass with someone because if they leave, it's going to be really hard to find talent. So it's a bigger arcing problem than just a millennial not being up to par. That comes down to a management issue, but a lot of management is reluctant to do that because of this overarching shift in industries. When you say that, I can't help but think at what part when you're lowering expectations, does that become lowering the overall company standards? And now the company is not that company anymore. How do you avoid that? That's, that's the challenges that a lot of management has. So when you, when you look at this problem, I would say internally, it's better to not lower standards and instead keep those standards, but then put more of an emphasis on how you can recruit for that talent. And that's where a lot of things that I've helped out I think it was, I was in a water treatment conference in Florida talking to them about how to recruit millennials effectively. And I looked at all their recruiting videos and the ways that they're bringing in talent and a lot of it's outdated. And that's the opportunity for a lot of places that are in industries that are quote unquote struggling for talent is that it's easier to separate yourself because a lot of the other companies are, I would stereotyping here, but I think this is true is that they're run by usually people who are more senior who are not, say, as tech-savvy as someone who's younger, which completely is a dissonance in the recruiting efforts. Well, you put it out there. I'm going to ask, what did you see that you thought was outdated, and then what would you recommend it become? Yeah, so for a lot of companies in those industries, the biggest problem that I saw, let's just take a simple recruiting video, right? Like you go to their website, and you're, say, a young candidate, and you're looking for, is this a place that I want to work, right, before you send out the resume? So you're going to try and get a feel for, are these people that I want to be around on a day-to-day -day basis? And the first thing that I looked at is, okay, what's the first thing a candidate looks at? The recruiting video. And I pull up all these recruiting videos, and there's this one thing that a lot of companies are struggling with, especially in more like blue-collar sectors, and that is the humification of companies. Being able to show behind the scenes that there is a human who actually enjoys this line of work. And so often, you have people who, are, who just show up, and they know why they like what they do, but they don't capitalize on that and they don't show that they're actual people. So the way that would manifest in a video 
is say the uh, let's say it's a a water treatment company and the owner of the company is in the video and they're saying hey here's like why why I like being here here's Sally I work with her every day and making this more of a human experience because what's happening in the workplace today is millennials and younger generations are looking for the corporate facade to be pulled back and know that there's actual humans on the other side of the table. That's one of the big things that they look for at this point. And being able to capitalize on that is a huge attracting factor for younger demographics. Well, I have firsthand experience from the association conference that I was telling you about where the number one issue was that people could not find people to fill the positions that they needed to fill. And then right after that, they were criticizing millennials and how they did the work that they wanted them to do. So you've helped us a lot with that. What are some other things, other tips that you can give company owners or the marketing directors uh, to outreach to the masses so they can see that this is a company that they should want to work for and then attract more people because of that. The biggest thing I would look at is in ter- the eyeball approach. And it's not, you have to look at what is the actual journey for the ideal candidate and how do you get, put yourself as a company on that journey. So for instance, you look back 20, 30 years ago, it was, can I look in the newspaper in the classified section and find a job opening? One of the things that when I was younger, what my dad used to do is sit me down at you know, 10, 13 years old and say, here's a classified section, here are the jobs, do you see any jobs that you like? Not that I was going to apply, but you kind of got me in that mode. Now, you can go to Monster, you can go to Indeed, you can go to Glassdoor, and now most millennials will go from there and then check the social media of the company. So it's being aware of this change of journey, right? Just like if you're trying to acquire a new customer, same exact thing, but treating the recruitment process like the sales team and how can you get along that path and then creating that strong enough value proposition to attract that talent. So one great way of getting this a strong value proposition is interviewing people in the company that you work at and say, why do you like working here? And very often what a lot of companies find is that They'll interview, say, 10 millennials, and they'll get three value propositions that they think are really strong. And they'll go to the executive team and they'll say, why do you think younger talent likes to work here? And it will be completely different. And that's the problem when you have different generations in the workplace. Usually they're siloed off and they don't exchange this information. And that's part of one of the things that I try and do is bring the workplace together so that the more senior executives who create the recruiting plans, who put together the recruiting budget, know exactly why those millennials like to work at that company. So if somebody were to do that, is it safe to say that they're going to attract mostly millennials and not other people from other generations, or are they going to get a mix? Yeah, this comes down to the same thing in sales. You need to talk to the your ideal demographic and interview them and see what they say and then create the value proposition around that. If they go to all Generation X and Baby Boomers, it's going to be completely different. For instance, if I don't know if you have kids or whatnot or a house and, and those kinds of things, but if you have those things in line, you're probably looking for something that's more stable, right? Versus a up-and-coming tech startup that can go under in the next month or go IPO in the next year. You don't know. But that might be a lot more attractive to someone who's younger. It just all depends on what are you trying to attract? All right. So you mentioned that. So I've got to bring this up. When I was looking to join the workforce, I was really looking for a company that I was going to stay for an indefinite amount of time. I wasn't looking that this was going to be a short-term company, and then I was going to move uh, up the ladder by moving to other companies. But now that seems to be the common theme, that people don't start with a company thinking that they're going to be there very long-term, and maybe they don't have the house, maybe they don't have the kids, and they don't need that. But is the millennial mindset different around how long they're going to keep a job and what a career is? I don't think this is a millennial mindset. I think this is an environmental issue. And what I mean by environmental is you can ask yourself, is it easier or harder to find work today? And the answer is, well, it's much easier. And you say, well, how is that? You can go online, go into Google. There's 10 different job boards that you can start blasting out resumes to. And if you want to get more tech savvy, 
you can hire someone in a different country for $50 to send out a thousand resumes if you really want to take it to that level. Or you can sign up with Lyft and Uber and get start you know, working in the next week or so. The point that I'm trying to drive home here is that since it's easier to find work, that unintentionally decreases retention. A lot of companies, what they try and say is, well, how can I make people stay longer? Right? That's the big thing that people try and ask. Yes, you can use a lot of things like self-determination theory. You can try and work in terms of making sure that they're aligning their career path. Those are all great options. But at the end of the day, it's so much easier to leave than ever before that companies have a hard time holding on. So what I advocate for a lot of companies is, is that, look, they're going to leave. So the best thing that you can do is hold your ground, make sure that they're doing quality work, but make sure that they're having a quality experience so then they can refer people who they know into their network to build that strong culture. And you'll see all across the board that there's no longer this 30-year, 40-year career, you know, I go to this one job, I get a watch and everything. You know, you've heard that whole thing a million times from people who talk about the change in economy. But why is that the case? And that's the big thing is technology bites back. We talk a lot about a system here called EOS, the Entrepreneur Operating System. It's a system that Gino Wickman put out. And basically, it teaches you how to hire, fire, reward, and recognize based on your core values as a company. So let's say there's a company like mine. We have those core values. Now, do we have to change how we look at that based on the demographic that we're looking at, based on that we're trying to hire millennials? Depends because a lot of millennials are looking at aspects that are higher in, say, Maslow's hierarchy. It's not just about, hey, you know, am I earning enough money? It's do I agree with what the company's doing in the world? And what a lot of companies are having to do now is sort of reframe what they do in terms of, I wouldn't say their value, their like their values in the company, but they would change, say, their purpose and their mission of what they do in the world. So then when, when there's a millennial out there, instead of it being, oh, you know, we're a water treatment place and our main goal is to, you know, purify water. It could be a little bit deeper and it's like, well, we're clearing this place of, you know, the safari desert to make sure that the children that are here have, can live longer than just 15 years. You know, something like that, that ties more to the heart of what they're looking for. Again, this comes down to more of how do you spin, change the value proposition to suit, say, that change of I guess what millennials look for in companies. But here's the big asterisk that I have next to that, which I don't feel like enough people talk about. And that is one of the biggest reasons why you have millennials who are like, oh, I want to work in a place that's so purpose-driven is that the economy has been so nice for so long. <laughs> if you had to switch in the economic uh, times, a lot of millennials would be like, I just need to pay off my bills. And there would be a dramatic shift. But since we've been in such a, I would say, soft time, a lot of people get used to it. That's a great point. And many economists say that we're getting ready to have a recession in the next couple of years. So do you think that, uh, that things will start shifting to that soon? 110%. Uh, in terms of like, do I think there's going to be a shift or is that, do I think that the millennial behavior will change once the economy shifts? Oh, the behavior. Oh, definitely. 110%. I mean, that's how it works, right? We're currently in a candidate market, not an employer market. So you mentioned how millennials are motivated. And a lot of people in older generations, they think, okay, if you're not happy here, I'm going to throw some more money at you. And that's going to make you happy. And maybe that's worked for some other generations, or maybe they're just able to cover things up better if they have more money to do it with. But how does somebody motivate what you describe, somebody that wants to go out there and change the planet, somebody that wants to go out there and know that they're making a cause. How does somebody motivate the millennial? Depends on the kind of millennial that you're dealing with. It's more the individual who you're sitting across from and what they're looking for in the relationship at the workplace. They might just say, hey, I need some place to pay the bills and something stable so I don't go crazy. Great. But if they're looking to change the world, it's a matter of how do you harness that effectively. The only way that you'll be able to truly find what that is, is building an authentic relationship as a manager with that millennial employee. Because what happens very often is that when someone interviews at a company, they'll tell the employer whatever they want to hear in order to get hired. But the, the employer won't really know that true meaning until further down the line, or maybe never. But it's their ability, as in the manager, to form that authentic relationship so the 
millennial feels comfortable enough to say, here's why I like working here. Here's a true authentic reason why. And once the manager hears that, it's then their job to, okay, how can I help them on their personal journey in their life to reach that point? Then it's a win-win because the engagement kicks up on the millennial side and the manager is getting a higher turnout in terms of productivity from the direct report. I love that. Our company is more about culture than anything else. And I so agree with you that you have to know the individual, that you got to make sure that all the individuals know how to work with each other and support each other. You know, I'm, I'm asking these questions because I know a lot of people haven't done as much work in core values and making sure that they do have culture. But with that, I always have the issue, how do I work some of those culture questions? How do I work for some of those core value questions and why that person really wants to work here into the interview process because you're right people want to tell you what they think you want to hear but we want to make sure that we're always hiring right people that are going to help our culture how how can we do that better i'm a huge stickler for this i really think it's challenging on many different fronts that it's very challenging to find someone who resonates with your value system because the value system if you look at it in more of a psychotherapeutic perspective is that each person has like a hierarchy of different values that they hold in life and what companies try to do is find people who have say who align with the company values but the problem is that culture is always there whether or not you write on the wall whether or not you sit down in a board meeting with a bunch of executives and say here's our culture it's always there and so I think it's less of, well, does this person value integrity over commitment? It's less of that and say, can this person complete the job well enough and cohesively work with people around them? And then the leaders in the organization who hold those values, it'll trickle down so that people will act in correspondence with those values. I know it's probably a little bit different than you're used to in terms of an answer for that. Well, I think it's great advice, and it's something that if I could have done on my own, I, we wouldn't need to have this interview. So thank you for that advice. <laughs> I mean, you're welcome. And one of the problems, though, that are in interviews, is a lot of research that's been done in terms of looking at future job performance and how well someone does in an interview. And what they looked at is they found that the unstructured interviews, so sitting down with the candidate and, say, asking random culture questions is a very poor performer in terms of correlating their job performance and how they did in the interview. In fact, it's around 0.38, so 38% of the time. If they did well in that interview, it means they're going to do well in the job. And so what I think a lot of companies should do, and this is where you probably have get into, say, job interview bias, is that have structured interviews. So let's say you sit down and you find the 10 best questions that reflect the values of the workplace. And then you sit down with five candidates and based off of their responses, you give them all ratings. And then after they're all interviewed, you compare all the results. The one who scores the highest is the highest qualified candidate versus an unstructured interview where you felt the best person did the best job. Ideally, you want to make it more structured because in terms of the research on that, it's around, uh, it's around 54 or 51% in terms of the correlation. So it's about 13% higher. That's great advice. I, I've, I've read something similar to that in several books, and we actually had an HR consultant come in and tell us the exact same thing. So you're educating the Scaling Up Nation for free and giving them advice that cost me a whole bunch of money. I love it. I should have talked to you first. Oh, man. Well, I, I'm just looking at free research online, man. <laughs> Don't credit me with too crazy of stuff. <laughs> Well, hey, no, that's great. Well, let's talk about social media because that's something where I struggle. I get by, meaning I have them on my, the apps on my phone, and that's about it. But I have seen what social media has done for this podcast. I was not very good at posting for social media, and uh, I didn't enjoy it. And I hired somebody, uh, consequently a millennial, that their job was to go out and post what we're talking about on the show. And we've seen our ratings tenfold multiply. And that's been because of the social media presence. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about social media, how we should look at it, why it's important, and what are some things that we should be doing with it? In terms of we, are you referring to a company leveraging social media to attract more talent? 
you spoke a little on that before. So maybe we we go a little bit deeper on how we attract talent. But then also you had mentioned that in addition to the interview process, people are looking at us and what we're posting on our companies just to see if that's a good place to work, just like our customers are. So how do we do a better job with that? A really good rule of thumb here is that looking at what platforms have the most eyeballs on it right now. So if you're trying to give a millennial or someone who's younger a really good impression of your company, usually the platform right now is Instagram for that. So I guess for someone who's more senior, maybe not around social media as much, you have some basic platforms. You'll have, say, Facebook, you have Twitter, uh, you have Instagram, and you have YouTube. So it's kind of a base four right there. You have LinkedIn too. So I'm not I'm not as worried about that one. It's more Instagram and Facebook, not so much because it's becoming more outdated, but I would say just keep it really short and sweet for this podcast. Talk about Instagram. And so two things that you really want to focus on is the people and the experience that the people are going through on Instagram. And what I have actually struggled with the same thing you have, which is I hate posting on social media. I'm a millennial. I hate it with, I just don't like social media in general. I think it's too fake, but people look on there. So you have to go where the people are looking and, you know, adapt to those things. So I used to do a lot of corporate uh, posts, which means that, hey, here's some nice text. It's all fancy. It's pretty. But until that, I actually showed behind the scenes what we were doing. Oh, here's me silly. I had to dress up like a cowboy for this keynote uh, speech. Or here's me next to the CEO of this real like billion dollar revenue real estate company. And I'm like standing there like a dork with my thumbs up and a pink tie. And he's there like doing the same thing. People love that stuff. They just ate it up because it's focused on the people and the experience. And if as a company, you're like, oh, I don't want to go through all this time and hire like a consultant to come in here. Here's something really easy you can do. There's people who love their job. Maybe say, pull them aside and say, hey, why do you like working here? Tell them a little bit, put it on YouTube. Or when someone's having a really good time at work, take a picture of what they're doing as a group, a team, trying to capture the individuals and the experience that they're, that they're going through in the workplace. That's great advice. Now, you brought this up earlier, so I have to ask you, how do smartphones change the way you think? Yeah, there's a lot of... So smartphones kind of work as a, a channel for the internet and essentially more things that are instantaneous to our minds. And it makes everything sort of more convenient. And in a way, our brains start to adapt to that. To It compensates in handling more multitasking at the expense of attention span. So the research back in 2000, they did research on how long can someone focus on an individual task or on a particular thing. It was about 12 seconds. Recently, in 2012, Microsoft came out with a study called, you have a shorter attention span than your goldfish. And what it found was that your attention span dropped from 12 seconds to eight seconds. And a goldfish was at nine seconds. And so it, it's basically your ability to compensate uh, in a shorter attention span. But that's the first part. Then the other part is whenever you get, say, a text message, an email, a notification from an app, that's a dopamine hit. And when you consistently get these dopamine hits, over time, your brain becomes desensitized. So instead of feeling, say, good after five notifications, you'll need 10, 50, 100 notifications just to feel that same hit. Hence, where you have people who are tied to their phone all the time. It's simply to keep that high. And that's where smartphones get really embedded into people's lives and it starts to take over people's reality. So there's that aspect. The last one that's pretty impactful is that in the workplace, people can easily become overworked, especially remote employees. I don't know if you've dealt with too many remote teams, but both of my companies have been remote. When you have remote employees, they're more likely to overwork than employees in the office. And you might say, well, why is that the case? In part, it's because they have technology to be available all the time, and they're not sure because they can't, say, see the individual boss and if it's okay if their work is adequate enough. So you get this very interesting paradigm shift where not only for remote teams, but also in the workplace where people are now working more hours because they can take their work home with them. And so smartphones are just a channel to open up these endless possibilities that you can do work from wherever. But then that also means that your expectations are 
you are now expected to work more hours because you can because of technology. Yeah, I know this concept is foreign to you, but when I first started in the water treatment industry, I had a pager and I would get paged. I had no idea who was on the other end of that number that was just paged. And then I would have to pull over, find a payphone, put a quarter in it, and then make the phone call. And because of that, people expected, okay, I'm going to try to find Trace, let him know that I need him, but I'm going to give him maybe a day or so to contact me back. Now with smartphones, I don't care if you're in the bathroom, you got to call me back because I just called you. I need to know now. And that's kind of what we moved to. So that's probably never going to change, but that makes it so we can't concentrate on things. I mean, that was that was in the late 90s that I was referring to, uh, maybe maybe mid 90s. But with that, I had time to actually think about, you know, who I was going to reply to, what I was going to say. And, and now we have that expectation where everything has to happen right there. I'm not going to give you any time to call me back. You have to answer your phone. And, and maybe even some people think that you're not responsive if I go to your voicemail. You have to answer the phone. Yeah, and some companies have pushed back quite a bit in the early 2000s on that. I don't know if you remember this at all, but there was a time when people would try and reduce emails, like internal company emails, by saying, oh, one day a week there's no company emails because they saw this massive effect where people would just get tied in and because technology allowed it to happen. And it recently, France outlawed emailing on the weekends. Wow. Yeah, and there's like a fine if you're a certain size company, you're emailing on the weekends that you can get penalized. But I talked to someone from France and they're like, yeah, do you really think that everyone's following that rule? Come on. So, <laughs> I mean, there's people are trying to fight back, but it's kind of coming like an avalanche where people don't really see it coming. They're like, oh, great. I can text someone whenever I want, but that also means that your boss can get a hold of you whenever you want, and so can everyone else. And people aren't meant to be on 24-7. Right, right. We had a psychologist come and talk to my business group, and I wish I could remember the question she asked us, but she said, everybody put your phones away, put your devices away. You are not allowed to look the answer to this question up, and you have to give your brain at least 24 hours to think about it and I promise you will get the answer. And it was one of those questions that you knew you knew, but you couldn't really remember what it was. I wish I could remember that question. And sure enough, uh, later that night, I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's this, this is the answer to that. And her point with that was, is we're not allowing our brains to go through the processes to think through things we already know and get the answer for ourselves. We are depriving ourselves of that process by simply just right off the bat going to our smartphones. And her whole point was we're making it so we're not allowing ourselves to think. We're teaching ourselves not to think. Exactly. And that's what they found with the goldfish research that Microsoft put out. That's a big, big issue. And what, a, what I've actually done to overcome that issue is that I would, for by writing, I would write first thing in the morning. I don't have my work email on my phone. And the only time when I'll check my work email is when I completely have done my creative, deep, critical thinking. And once that's there, then I'll check social media and everything else. But if you check that in the middle, middle of trying to do that creative thinking, you start to short circuit your brain. You can't get to that deep, critical thinking. That is such awesome advice. I teach time management to people and people that are so addicted to their phones, they lose so much time throughout the day. And of course, we're never going to get more than 24 hours out of a day, but we can use that 24 hours more efficiently. And I try to train people to go back and only look at their cell phones once an hour. And then hopefully, and then schedule time blocks in their day where, okay, at nine o'clock, I'm going to look at my phone. I love that you use it as a reward. So when I'm, when I'm done with this, okay, then I'll go ahead and I'll, and I'll work with this or I'll work with social media. I think that's great advice. Wait, I know you've written a couple of books. Can you tell us about those? Yeah. So the first one was kind of a funny one. Well, I, I consider it funny. I was speaking to high school students at the time and it was basically a lot of psychology in terms of how do you change your performance in your life to become what you want it to be. So the title of the book is The Key to the New You, and it's uh, tools to help high school students become the person they want to be. 
And so I took a lot of things from psychotherapy and goal setting that I learned, put it into a nice uh, book that I would consider. It's not like an easy Tony Robbins read. It gets a little bit technical in some places, but it's highly practical for that age group. So that was the first one that I put out. It was about when I was 25 years old. And then this past year, I put out a second book, which is more related to the workplace. Ironically, it almost builds off the first one. And the second one's called The Authentic Workplace. And it's how authenticity is changing the way we work today. And that's going into a lot of the things that we talked about here, which is, you know, management. Why is it important to have an authentic relationship with an employee? Well, you can figure out if they're going to leave the company, what they want to do in their career. What about being a leader and being authentic? People trust leaders who are authentic. And you, whether or not you agree with the news, the current president today is probably the, one of the most authentic people you would you would know as a president, like it or not. And that's one of the reasons why he did so well is that people are like, well, I trust what he's saying, even though I don't agree with it. <laughs> so, and then you have like social media, how to be authentic through that, recruiting, how to get that strong value proposition. So what I saw is all across the levels in the workplace, authenticity was being sort of a catalyst that people were jumping towards. And I wanted to capture that in that book. Well, awesome. I'll make sure to have links for those on my show notes page. So one final question before we get into the lightning round. And the final question is that if there was just one thing that you wanted to get across to the Scaling Up Nation, what is that? In regards to generations, I would say don't fall prey to generation stereotypes. Look at the individuals and do not stray away from common management principles. That's awesome. And I, I think we definitely did that. That was a mindset that I could definitely see happening throughout our conversation today, but I'm not quite done with you yet. I do have a couple lightning round questions for you. The point values are doubled, so it's anybody's game at this point. Are you ready? All right. So uh, uh, I know you've written several books, but what are the last three books that you've read? Uh, we Currently, right now, I'm reading a book on managerial judgment decisions. It's a book on an MBA program that I'm looking through right now. That's one of them. Uh, second one is a autobiography of Walter Payton, kind of a curveball there. And then the third one is the Medal of Honor. And it's a story about a cross-country skier. I like personal development books or like books on people who've accomplished a lot of stuff because it helps me understand base human psychology. So those are the three. All right. And eventually Hollywood's going to find out about your story. Who plays you? Uh, Gerald Butler. I'm trying to think if I know who that is. What was he in? Yeah, 300. Oh, gotcha. He, well, we have the same last name, so we can say how he's related to me. Very cool. Very cool. Final question. You now have the ability to talk to anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? Mary Weather Lewis. So he is the Lewis and Lewis and Clark. And it turns out that I'm. I guess his great, great, great grandson. Oh, wow. So like, cause what he, what he and uh, Clark did was just crazy. If you think about it, like they explored the whole, I mean, going from Boston area all the way and explored the United States and we're out there for like a whole year with nothing. And I'm just like, blew my mind's blown. Like, so we get worried about walking in the snow <laughs> for like 10 minutes. And they were living out there with like no supplies, no smartphones, no technology, no anything. Like, it's just incredible what they accomplished. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on Scaling Up H2O. I know we all learned a lot from this interview. And I think you gave us several action items that we can all make our companies working with individuals a lot better. Thanks so much. Yeah, no problem. Glad to be on. Nation, I know you are thinking about the generations differently after that interview with Jeff. It's so easy for us to stereotype different generations by saying, hey, you're a millennial. That means you are doing these things. I love his black coffee analogy. And if one millennial didn't like black coffee, well, hey, they break that mold. Well, that was his whole point. We have to make sure we hire the 
the best person. They just might be a certain age, but the best person for that job. And then making sure that we make very clear what the expectations of that job is. And as we're training different tasks of that job, making sure we go through the expectations. Folks, there's no doubt about it. There's a lot of experience out there in the industrial water treatment community, but there's no reason that we can't share that with new people coming into the workplace. So just think about it. If we just knew what we knew and we didn't bring new blood, so to speak, into our companies, we would be stagnant. So we may have to teach somebody what to do and how to do it, but if they want to do it and want to be part of that culture, they just might need a little bit more help based on what your expectations are. Well, once you get over that hurdle, how awesome is that company going to be? So Nation, I hope that today's episode gave you some tips on what you can do, some items you can do on attracting new people, hiring people, rewarding people. And we had a focus around the millennial generation, but as you quickly heard in this interview, it's not just the millennials, it's everybody because everybody is a person regardless of their age. And I got to tell you, Jeff's books do a great job of explaining this. I want to make sure to have his books on my show notes page. He also has a lot of great content that he puts out on LinkedIn. Like I said, I paid a whole bunch of money for somebody to tell me the items that Jeff told you all for free. So there's a lot of good stuff out there. And just think, the way we always do something doesn't mean it's the way we always have to do that. So what information can we learn to improve the process and make sure that we are bringing the best and brightest people into our organizations? Folks, I'd love to hear about your experiences with this and see how the Scaling Up Nation can work together to make sure that our companies are growing the way that they need to grow. And folks, I want to make sure that I am growing this show the way that it needs to grow. I'm so humbled to say that we're over 10,000 listeners. We're in over 60 countries. That is amazing to me. I'm behind my little microphone in Atlanta, Georgia, and over 60 countries worldwide are listening to Scaling Up H2O. Well, folks, that is because of the fine people in the Scaling Up Nation telling other Scaling Up potential members that they should listen to this show. Please don't stop doing that. If you come across another water trader, please let them know about this show. That helps me expand my audience. And that, of course, makes the Scaling Up Nation one of the factors that we're going to create a high tide to raise all boats. The whole point is to make the water treatment industry better. And each and every one of us is doing our part to improve the water treatment industry. Folks, I can't wait to talk to you next week on Scaling Up H2O.